This is God's word. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate, Nagar Sar Ezer of Samgar, Nebu Sar Sikim, the Rab Saris, Nergal Sar Ezer, the Rab Mag, with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden, through the gate between the two walls, and they went toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, the Rabsaris, Nagar Sar Ezer, the Rab Mag, and all the chief officers of the king of Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived among the people. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard, Go and say to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord. You shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid, for I will surely save you. You shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war because... You have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. I read that far from God's holy word. In his previous preaching, decades of preaching, Jeremiah made clear there's two choices. Surrender to God and his instrument, Babylon, and live, or resist and die. Resist God, resist the instrument of God, and die. Live or die. Surrender or resist. The two options have been made clear in Jeremiah's preaching. And under King Zedekiah, the city and the nation and the king made the wrong choice except for a precious few. This chapter provides 
an ominous, graphic, and concise account of the capture of Jerusalem, her king, her people, and also the protection of Jeremiah and another servant of the Lord that we've come to know, who both Jeremiah and Ebed trusted in God. Brings us to our main point. It's God alone who decides what will happen in the final day, both to those who trust in him and those who won't. So first we'll see how judgment from God eventually falls on those who will not listen, will not turn, will not trust in him, verses 1 to 10. Then we'll see in our second point from verses 11 to 17 what happens with Jeremiah, our precious prophet, that God's providential hand cares for his trusting servants And third, in verse 18, we'll zero in on the statement that God made there to Ebed-Melech and make this point that life is given to us not by our doing, but rather by our trusting. So first, uh, judgment from God eventually falls. Uh, Verse 1, we have the final day for Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem was an epic event in Scripture. It's, It's up there. It's one of the biggies. It's an event of such magnitude that we have things like verse 1, recording the date of the beginning of the attack. That date being carefully preserved here. It's big in their history. It's big for us in redemptive history. It's sort of like we have December 7, Pearl Harbor Day, etched into our collective mindset as a nation. We also now have 9-11 etched into our memory as a day of an attack on America. This ancient time stamp for the fall of Jerusalem was measured by the years of the reign of the king, as they always did. So we know this as the year 588 B.C., but you'll see how it's listed there in verse 1. So in such and such year of King Zedekiah. We even have the month recorded, the year and the month. Over in the book of Ezekiel, it's even added which day of the month the siege started. And the attack lasted 18 months, so verse 2 records for us the year what we would call 586 B.C. for the actual defeat then of Jerusalem, when the siege began and when the, de- the defeat of the city happened 18 months later. So we know from Jeremiah 52, the last chapter of Jeremiah, and from the book of Lamentations that Jeremiah also wrote in chapter 4, we know from those two places that the city was forced to surrender after 18 months Because the food supply, I'm not apologizing, I'm just preparing you, that the food supply was so exhausted of the people that lived in Jerusalem that they were resorting to cannibalism. So that's the scene. Verse 3, one month after the wall of Jerusalem was broken through, the enemy army's generals triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem. They took their seats symbolically in the main court the seat of power. The emotional moment marked the definitive concluding downfall of Jerusalem. The generals established then a military command center at the central gate of Jerusalem, the courthouse, the center of power. This event is a direct fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 15, where the Lord God said, For behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, And everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. Jeremiah 1, verse 15, being fulfilled here in our passage. It's interesting further in verse 3, not just to give me a bit of a challenge for saying these things publicly to you and enunciating all these ancient Babylonian names, 
but it's interesting that Jeremiah listed the names of Babylonian officials. Their names were perhaps simply their titles, but it's what they went by, and they're listed here. They form, the, the names are formed with the names of false Babylonian gods. Babylonian gods such as Nebo, Babylonian gods such as Nergal. So, for example, when you read Nergal Sar Ezer, it's translated, May Nergal protect the king. You get the idea. We have those sorts of names in Israel. The God's name, our God's name, El, is built into certain names, or Aya or El, those sorts of endings on names, indicates the same idea. This was a group of thoroughgoing Babylonian dignitaries and diplomats, the highest ranks, generals from the enemy army, all descended on the center gate in Jerusalem. And the people that you would expect to be there to replace the government permanently were all there, all the persons necessary to set up a Babylonian-controlled government in the heart of Jerusalem. It's over. Verse 4, the king of Jerusalem and Judah, ours, you know, King Zedekiah, whom we've been studying, what's his response? He was told to surrender to God's instrument, this enemy army. Does he surrender? Or does he stay on his own track of fighting against them? He does neither. He flees. And to highlight the cowardice, he flees at night. This ought to tell you just how frightening the scene was. He gets out through the king's gardens and along a deep valley called the Arabah, which seemed like the best escape route if you were going to take time to figure out how to get the king out. It's a pretty good plan. Verse 5, however, tells us the king was easily and quickly recaptured. Now what? What, what do you suppose that an enemy army of Babylon might do when they find the highest-ranking official of the region. They brought the king to their boss, the highest-ranking official of the attacking army of Babylon. Who's that, by the way? King Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, you remember him from the book of Daniel. You remember him from our own book here of Jeremiah. Ominously and symbolically, the king of Babylon is now face-to-face with our king, King Zedekiah. So a prophecy is fulfilled where King Zedekiah sees the king of Babylon face to face. We don't know what he looked like, but it must have been an ominous moment filled with fear. That's one of the last things he saw, but not the last thing he saw. The king of Babylon passed sentence on the king of Judah. This is not a sentence from God. God's not mentioned in the first 10 verses, but you know it's a sentence from God through the mouth of the enemy king of Babylon. Verse 6, the sons of the king were slaughtered while the king watched. That's the last thing he saw, all of his sons being slaughtered in front of him. The nobles too. The last thing he saw with his eyes, because in verse 7 they removed the eyes of the king of Judah, King Zedekiah. He was blinded on purpose as a common ancient instrument of war. Next, the king was shackled in chains. 
Lastly, the king was taken away, now as a chained, blinded prisoner of war, off to the foreign city of Babylon. Is it ever over? But there's more. Verse 8, the king's house is burned. The houses of the people were burned. The temple was burned. The protective walls surrounding the city of Jerusalem were broken down. Verse 9, there's only two groups of people left in the city. Those who had surrendered to Babylon and those who had not. Both groups were brought away into exile. The dual exile, you see it? Those who were going to live and those who were going to die, both being brought off into exile, foreshadows the two outcomes in the final judgment. This is a picture of God's judgment and how it always works. God's judgment has two outcomes. Listen, for example, the words of Jesus, ever so clear. John 5, 28. An hour is coming, says Jesus, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Listen carefully. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see the dual outcome? John 5, 28 and 29, words of Jesus. But back to our passage, we see it here. Verse 10, in those last days, some poor people were left behind because they were not a danger of revolting later against Babylon. No training, no weapons. They were just poor people. And if the enemy army of Babylon left them in some fields, then they could provide some ongoing food to any troops left to monitor the area. So poor people are left there. Again, God's not mentioned in these 10 verses, but God's judgment is operating. The agency of humans of the enemy army are conducting the way God says for this to be conducted. And in the process, each of the sinners are facing accountability to God of all the nations, the God of all the earth, only to be followed by accountability to God in the life beyond this world. God's wrath caused his face to turn away. And for him not to be mentioned in these verses, God abandoned the king and the people. How much more profound is the silence of God's abandonment when the sinless Son of God, years later in the same city of Jerusalem, who is bearing our sins, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46, and the answer is because he had our sins placed upon him. And he was taking our place. He was our substitute. That's why God the Father forsook him. And in the case of Jerusalem, the answer was for their own sins. That's why they're forsaken. And in the case of Jesus, the answer is for our sins. That's why he was forsaken. Consider the irony of what happened to the king compared to what happened to these poor starving people we're told in verse 10. Why is verse 10 there? We're supposed to conclude things. At one level... There's simply a financial reversal, but a financial reversal means something. It's a picture of what God provides. Like the Virgin Mary saying in Luke 1, 52-53, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. Luke 1, 52-53. The king and all of Jerusalem's elite crowd of the wealthy, the powerful people, had been humbled to the dust of death, while the poorest of the land were now given resources and assets that would help them build viable lives for themselves and their families right within the promised land. Look who accomplished the reversal. 
God used a foreign king. God had given this task of caring for the poor to his own leaders. Provide economic fairness. Provide for the needy. But the city of God trampled on the covenant requirements of God. And so it was a pagan king who now implemented some of the real and immediate action towards this ideal that God had in mind in the dual judgment on the day. While the haves were taken into exile for two generations, the have-nots were given land. They were given fields and vineyards here in verse 10. And they received that land from their conqueror. That's God at work. We move on to the second point. God's providential hand cares for his trusting servants. We already got an inkling in how the poor were cared for. Now what about Jeremiah? (laughs) Starting in verse 11, Jeremiah receives better treatment at the hands of the enemy king than he had received at the hands of his own people. Need I mention the dungeon, the cistern, the beatings? He received better treatment, careful treatment, at the hands of enemy Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar than he did at the hands of his own King Zedekiah and his officials. Better treatment from the enemy than from his own people whom Jeremiah loved. In verses 11 and 12, we have a quote from the king of Babylon regarding Jeremiah. Take this one home with you. Take him, King Nebuchadnezzar says, referring to Jeremiah, take him and look after him well and do him no harm. The king's order, the king's edict from Babylon himself. Verses 13 and 14, the chief officers of Babylon released Jeremiah from the court of the guard. It's only now that he's finally released from house arrest by the enemy king springing him. Where he had been on house arrest from his own king, he's now released. And they entrusted him, Jeremiah, to the care of Gedaliah. This is the man who is soon to be governor, if you glance ahead at chapter 40, verse 7. In order to take Jeremiah to his own home and take care of Jeremiah in a house. Jeremiah was now a free man, not taken as an exile off to Babylon. Jeremiah knew that the task of tearing down and overthrowing was finished. It's already time to prepare for building and planting, as we remember from Jeremiah 1 verse 10. So now verses 15 and 16, we get these verses that belong chronologically to the events prior to the fall of Jerusalem. You'll recognize this. These verses are listed here, though, to highlight that God's word is true it's topical, not chronological. So we have this verdict on Ebed-Melech listed here to say that God's word is true not just for judgment. God's word is also true for salvation for those who trust in him. Verse 16 says, Back in the time when Jeremiah was still confined in the house of the court of the guard, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah to say what is recorded in verse 16. Say to Ebed the Ethiopian, I will fulfill my words. Fine, but notice verse 17, where God also said, I will deliver you on that day. The day of judgment is the same day as the day of salvation. We press forward to our third point in the last verse, focusing in on this phrase now. Life is given to us not by our doing, but rather by our trusting. Verse 18, now do you see why Jeremiah organized his book by topic rather than by timeline? He wanted us to see the similarity between God's care for Jeremiah and God's care for this man called Ebed-Melech. Ebed-Melech, remember, is the one who stood up to the king, King Zedekiah, about the conditions of Jeremiah in a pit and about to die. 
Abed-Melech, the servant of the king, is the one who got together a team of people to lift Jeremiah out from that pit. Not only was his courageous act seen by God and his kindness of putting buffers between the ropes and Jeremiah's arms seen by God, but the action of God now to declare deliverance for Ebed is just like our God. This is what God is like. It's something that King David knew about God and celebrated in songs such as Psalm 3740. The Lord helps the righteous and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Psalm 3740. David knew it about God. Jeremiah knew it about God. Abed-Melech found out about what this God is like. The righteous are safe in our God, even in the darkest day of judgment. For Ebed, just as for others, his trust in God was his salvation. It connects him to the God who's powerful and able to save. It shows again the action of God is twofold in judgment. Consider the double action of God on the day of judgment listed in Westminster Larger Catechism 83. Listen carefully. What is the communion and glory with Christ which the members of the invisible church enjoy in this life? Answer, the members of the invisible church have communicated to them in this life the first fruits of glory with Christ as they are members of him, their head, and so in him are interested in that glory which he is fully possessed of and as an earnest thereof enjoy the sense of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, and hope of glory. As on the contrary... Sense of God's revenging wrath, horror of conscience, and a fearful expectation of judgment are to the wicked the beginning of their torments, which they shall endure after death. Westminster Larger Catechism 83, the twofold nature of the day. The day of the Lord is not simply a day of judgment. The day of the Lord is not simply a day of salvation. It's both throughout Scripture i just list a couple examples to defend what I'm saying to you. In the flood, destruction worldwide, but God remembered Noah and his family. In the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, fire raining down from heaven, and yet God rescued Lot and his family. In the wilderness generation, destruction, and yet God, the first Canaanite that we hear about, I'm sorry, that God rescued Joshua and Caleb as they enter the land. In the conquest, the first Canaanite we read about in Joshua was a converted one who gets saved by God, Rahab and her family. You see the pattern? Why? This is our God. Even while giving out wrath, he remembers mercy. Same here in Jeremiah 39. In the middle of engulfing destruction of the city of God, Jerusalem, some poor people are saved, and two others, Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech. Judgment mixed with salvation. Jeremiah is saved in verses 11 through 14. Ebed-Melech is saved in verses 15 to 18. Jeremiah was protected by foreigners. Ebed-Melech himself, a foreigner from Ethiopia, and saved by direct command of the God of Israel. Why? Because this foreigner was doing what God's people refused to do, trusting in the Lord. The faith of a foreigner is contrasted with the hardened unbelief of God's own people. The courageous action of this foreigner showed that his faith was in both word and deed. The chapter 11 of those who trusted in God, we could read 
as Hebrews 11.32 says, time would fail me to tell of dot, 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 others. We could fill in one of the others. It could maybe read like this. Ebed fits right in, you see. By faith, Abed-Melech stood up to a king, advocated for the life of a prophet, rescued Jeremiah with old clothes as a buffer between the ropes and Jeremiah's arms. By faith, Abed-Melech trusted in God and was rescued. Or in the book of James, when we read about Rahab, who was considered righteous for saving the lives of Israelite spies, we could put in there Ebed, who was considered righteous for what he did in saving a life, of a faithful old prophet. I'm not trying to mess with scripture or add things. I'm saying to you it's in the same vein and it's suggestive of us in Hebrews 11 that there's a lot of other people who walk in the same vein because it's the same pathway for all believers in both Old Testament and New. All the righteous are safe except Jesus the righteous one. He alone died for our sins. Not safe. The only time that God appears in chapter 39 is when God speaks. And God is silent to Jerusalem. Nothing else to say. On the day that Jerusalem fell, God is not issuing words of judgment. Instead, what God speaks in this chapter is addressed to a foreigner. The arrangement of the chapter is not chronological but topical. And the topic is, by the time we get to the final day, by the time you get to the destruction of Jerusalem, God and Israel have nothing more to say to one another. And what God has to say about protecting Jeremiah, he says by way of the foreign king's mouth. And what God has to say to the foreigner, God himself announces to Ebed, the Ethiopian. This is a beautiful chapter, if you have eyes to see it. What have we seen that God alone decides what will happen on the final day, both to those who trust in him and those who won't? We have three applications. Number one, be assured of God's loving concern and care for you. We can study judgment, and yet you can walk away encouraged and comforted. That's how it works. Matthew 10, verse 30, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. That's not some random detail about a God who just because he can has an incredibly detailed inventory of the universe and so somewhere it's listed how many hairs are on your head. That's not why it's there for curiosity. This is a detail sending you a message loud and clear about your safety. If God actually knows the number, which he does, of how many hairs are on your head, then God would not let a sparrow fall to the ground without his permission. He would not let a hair fall from your head without his permission. And he, of course, would not let your life be taken without his permission. It's God who's over, not just the wicked on the day of judgment, but he's over his people on the final day. As for your life, as for your personal safety and your soul's well-being, your destiny, God alone decides what happens to you. Be comforted in that because you know this God. You know the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father. You're a child of God. The Apostle Peter, writing to Christians who were scattered and persecuted, could write in 1 Peter 5, 7, that because of God's loving concern for us, we ought to daily be, quote, casting all your anxieties on God because he cares for you, end quote, 1 Peter 5, 7. It matters to God what happens to you and God himself remains involved in making sure that you are kept safe. 
What about Christians who have already died? Right. God keeps us safe ultimately. No promise that we have a hundred years of healthy life on earth without any persecution. That's not what this promise means. We could very easily face persecution. Rather, the promise is about beyond this life. Ultimately, you are safe. Right now, it's true. Nothing can touch you ultimately and permanently. In terms of um, destiny and forever eternity. In the context of persecution, in the context of people being killed and jailed. What did Paul and Silas say to the jailer? Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. It doesn't mean he would never have an attack. It doesn't mean that he's safe from sword, arrest, jail, exile, disease. That's not what it means at all. What it means is far better. What it means is ultimate salvation in the one thing we all really have to fear. In the final day, you are saved if you believe in the Lord Jesus. That's what they meant in Acts 16. When it counts, how valuable is that assurance? That's our first application. Be assured of God's loving concern and care for you. Second application, consider those in exile reading Jeremiah 39. You're in exile. You're reading back over the story. Maybe it's 20 years later, and you're reading the book of Jeremiah. What are you thinking when you read chapter 39? You're thinking in the wisdom of God, it's a beautiful thing that the organization of the chapters is such that chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33 have been read before the reading of chapter 39. How comforting in exile to go over the promises of the covenant. The hope for the future that expressed by God before he reviews the events of judgment that they knew good and well happened. For the believers in exile, reading about the final day, the end of Jerusalem, the destruction, and what happened in chapter 39 is not the end of God's covenant. It's not the end of God's people. It's not the end of God's temple. It's not the end of God's word. Even in exile, they can take hope from Jeremiah 39 because God's word reaches God's people even when they're in exile. What a comfort to them to read Jeremiah chapter 39. Even in exile, God's covenant covers his people, even in exile such as we are here, in exile in this world, waiting to be taken home. Rebuilding follows destruction. Restoration follows judgment. Homecoming follows exile because resurrection follows death. It's all built on our Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of the King who came to rescue his people. And Jesus Christ, the word, who is also the prophet, who came to announce the gospel to God's people. Our third and last application point, know what the Bible says will happen on the final day. You should understand what will happen. You know how it all ends. Just a quick review. that The Lord Jesus will return. He will break through the heavens and come down, praise his name, And we will give account to God for our lives. Jesus will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Matthew 25, 32. Two kinds of people on the final day, righteous and unrighteous. Righteous are only righteous by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that his righteousness is granted to us as an alien righteousness that becomes ours. We're clothed with the robe of Christ's righteousness. In other words, some will be saved and others will be lost forever. 
Some will be entering heaven's gates and others will be condemned to an eternal hell of fire. The burning of Jerusalem is an indelible picture of the final day of judgment. Like King Zedekiah, some people will think they can run away and escape God's judgment. They doubt the personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ to judge the world. They deny the existence of hell, claiming that they know God is nicer than that and he wouldn't possess such a place. They think they're good enough to get into heaven. The chapter stands as a biblical warning to all hopes of escaping the coming judgment of God. And it highlights the mercy of God. Right up to the very end, King Zedekiah could have repented. God repeatedly sent Jeremiah to renew the offer that he gave to the king and to the people to turn to God and repent. He sent Jeremiah to plead with the king to turn and have faith and repent. And the king rejected every invitation. It highlights the mercy of God. He's giving us the same opportunity he gave Zedekiah. Confess your sins. Trust in Jesus alone. Escape the coming judgment. Have it be for you salvation. The Bible says about the final day is that it's dual. It's a dual day. It's a two-fold day. Judgment for some at the same time, simultaneously, a day of salvation for others. Keep that in mind. It's very important to know as a Christian. The same day, simultaneous judgment and salvation. As ancient Jerusalem burned, God brought out Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech. It's an Old Testament hint that God offers salvation in Jesus Christ to all the nations of the world. And the New Testament confirms when, for example, in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40, the man whom Philip baptized was a man who just happened to be from Ethiopia. It's a reminder and a hint to us that in the final day, all nations will be judged, but also in that final day, there will be people saved from every tribe people, and nation. There's one more thing about what will happen on the final day that you carry with you that's taught in both Old Testament and New Testament. God is looking for those who trust in him. Jeremiah 39, 18, Ebed was not saved because of his actions. He wasn't saved because of his courage. He wasn't saved because of the extra kindness of the buffer for the ropes. He was saved, we are told in verse 18 of our passage, because he put his trust in the Lord God. It's faith alone that's the instrument of our justification and salvation. The same things taught in the New Testament. I'll close with this. Ephesians 2, 8. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Know what the Bible says will happen on the final day.